Our Aquinas 101 program has reached 100,000 subscribers on YouTube. Will you help us reach more souls? Support our mission by sending a gift at thomisticinstitute.org slash keep the cameras rolling. No spaces. That's thomisticinstitute.org slash keep the cameras rolling. Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. The citation in the title for tonight's talk, Christ Fully Reveals Man to Himself, comes from the famous number 22 of Gaudium et Spes, the Pastoral Constitution on the Church and the Modern World of the Second Vatican Council. It merits, in fact, to read the fuller passage in which this line occurs as it's packed with rich Christology and reaps rich anthropological fruit. So it reads, The truth is that only in the mystery of the incarnate word does the mystery of man take on light. For Adam, the, last, the first man, was a figure of him who was to come, namely Christ the Lord. Christ, the final Adam, by the revelation of the mystery of the Father and his love, fully reveals man to himself and makes his supreme calling clear. Crucially, this passage enumerates an anthropological teleology a Christo-anthropological teleology, as it were, in that humankind is ordered to Christ. All of humanity converges onto Christ. <clears throat> He's the, the uh, <clears throat> point de rendezvous, the reference point. He's the nexus of all of human history and of humanity itself. And note the unusual way this passage, passage links Adam and Christ. Usually the linking goes in only one direction, namely from Christ back to Adam, in that he's the new Adam. That's how he's normally referred to. Sort of a recovered Adam or an Adam 2.0. But as this passage indicates, the linking goes in both directions. And it signals this by calling Christ the final Adam, the last Adam. And that the first Adam is a type or prefigurement of the Christ who was to come. Christ looks back to Adam and Adam looks forward to Christ. So Adam is a proto-Christ, a first glimpse of Christ, an early enunciation, as he, in his role of father, as father of humanity, announces clearly, already, the Christ who is yet to come. But it's more than this, since, as the passage from Gaudium and Spes suggests, Christ is much more than an Adam 2.0. Since Adam doesn't fully reveal man to himself, only Christ does. And this is for the obvious reason that Adam is not God incarnate. He's not the God-man. Only Christ is. So in reality, Adam looks forward to Christ much more than Christ looks back to Adam. We all look to Christ from Adam to each one of us. We're all teleologically ordered to Christ. Again, he's the nexus of all of human history and of humanity itself thereby making him more than an Adam 2.0, more than a course correction or reset of Adam 1.0 and of all his descendants. Translation, all of humanity is summed up in Christ. Christ recapitulates all of humanity. The final Adam is an Adam on a whole other scale. Just as he is a man on a whole other scale, since he is the God-man. And a true man he is, not a half-man, a semblance of man, nor certainly a fake or phantom man. So with that in mind, I want to do a brief Christology primer for you here as regards Christ's true and full humanity, since he can reveal man fully to himself only if he shares fully in our humanity. Christian tradition has, in fact, ever had to counter the heretical tendency to deny or downplay Christ's true and full humanity. The heresy, the heretical tendency, the heresy goes by the name of docetism. It comes from the Greek word for to appear. 
namely that Christ only appeared to be human, but wasn't really, that he was only a phantom man. So a, a denial, or at least a, a downplaying, some docetism would be a downplaying of his humanity. This heresy goes right back to the very beginning, even to when St. John wrote the famous verse 14 in his prologue, and the word became flesh. St. John chooses the word flesh, sarx in Greek, caro in Latin, whence the word incarnation, since it's more, it's more concrete and less abstract than man. It means the hard, concrete stuff of this world, of bones and blood and flesh. So in order to keep the doctrine of God's becoming man from remaining merely in the abstract or confined to stained glass, as it were, in order to keep Christians from favoring a Jesus who, yes, is human, but only so much, St. John says not that the Word became man, but that the Word became flesh. So in this one simple verse, St. John makes a robust effort at stymieing a glorified view of Christ's humanity, one that washes out or dilutes and distorts his full and real humanity. Only if Christ is truly and fully human, a true and full man, can we speak of what we learn of our humanity in light of him. The ancient church went to great lengths to affirm as much, that is, to reject docetism and all soft versions of it, semi-docetism. It begins not only with John 1.14, but with other biblical passages, such as Hebrews 2.17, Christ had to be like his brethren in all things natural, fully human in every way. It continued with the celebrated soteriological principle, beloved and uh, employed repeatedly by the fathers of the church. The principle goes, what was not assumed was not healed. That is, that for the whole of man to be saved, Christ had to take on the whole of man. It was expressly affirmed creedally with the verb, and became man, anthropeo in Greek, which we bow at when we recite the Nicene Creed at Mass. We bow at no other line, which shows the fact that we bow when we recite it, it shows its solemn significance and that it declares a doctrine that is not to be trifled with, not to be soft-pedaled on. Finally, the church's effort at affirming Christ's real and full humanity reached a high point with the Council of Chalcedon in 451. This council took the famous word consubstantial, in Greek homoousios, employed at Nicaea to affirm Christ's full divinity, consubstantial with the Father. We recognize that from the Creed. Chalcedon used that word, consubstantial homoousios, in reference to Christ's humanity, <clears throat> declaring Christ to be consubstantial homoousios with us as regards his humanity. And Chalcedon did not stop there. And in its celebrated phrase proclaimed, this is the phrase that Chalcedon is best known for, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, acknowledged in two natures, which undergo no confusion, no change, no division, no separation. The no change and no confusion or no mixing together is what stands out for us, as it means that his human nature was in no way diluted or compromised by its being joined to the divine nature. His humanity was not swallowed up by his divinity. The integrity and distinct identity of Christ's human nature were fully preserved. So this is the doctrinal foundation or the Christological presupposition, if you will, of Gaudium et Spes' teaching that Christ fully reveals man to himself. Only if Jesus was a real flesh and blood man, only if he shares in our human nature fully and not partially, can he be a model for us and teach us what it means to be human? It's important that we get this whole business of Christ's true and full humanity right, since if we allow a glorified Christology to push Christ away from us too much, if we make him too unlike us, letting his humanity get swallowed up or silhouetted by his divinity, then this would in turn turn him into a threat to our own humanity. For if his humanity gets swallowed up by his divinity, then won't our own humanity 
get swallowed up when, through baptism, we become conformed to Christ and when we seek to imitate Christ? This perceived threat is real and existential. And indeed, there is a widespread impression, is there not, that in becoming Christ-like, in becoming a saint, we lose our humanity? We could call this a kind of practical docetism or a kind of reflexive spiritual docetism, a sort of feared self-effacement. And it was precisely to ward off this way of keeping Christ at arm's length that Hebrews 4.15 asserts that in Christ we have a God-man, quote, who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet did not sin, end quote. That's Hebrews. He's just like us in what he struggled with. He knows what it's like to be one of us because he is one of us, with the sole exception of his never having sinned. This perceived existential threat of a reflexive spiritual docetism is so real that Pope Benedict XVI touched on it in his inaugural pontifical mass, thereby making his response to it a cornerstone of his entire pontificate. It was indeed a signature theme of his pontificate. In that homily, he proclaimed that in Christ we lose nothing of our humanity. We only gain it. We gain what it means to be human. And we gain to the attainment of our supreme fulfillment as human beings. It's another way of expressing the same passage from Gaudermit Spes that, quote, only in the mystery of the incarnate word does the mystery of man take on light and that Christ fully reveals man to himself. Okay, before we dive into a Christologically inspired anthropology, what I call a Christo-anthropology, I'd like to note that my approach here will be a Thomistic inspired one. So what I mean is not that St. Thomas offers a treatise per se on Christian anthropology that is drawn from the light of the Incarnation or of the humanity assumed by the Son of God, the second person of the Holy Trinity, but he certainly offers principles relating to Christ's humanity that reap anthropological lessons, such that we can offer a kind of Thomistic Christo-anthropology. To this end, I'll be taking a mostly two-pronged negative-positive approach, and that I'll be stressing both the correction of anthropological errors that the Incarnation provides, the negative, and what we fully learn about our humanity in light of the Incarnation, the positive. In this connection, note carefully the word fully in the Gaudium et Spes passage. Christ fully reveals man to himself. Certainly, we don't need Christ or even divine revelation to know certain truths about human nature. Reason alone can determine much about the truth of our humanity, and indeed, Catholic teaching leans on and appropriates a certain philosophical anthropology, particularly an Aristotelian anthropology. But without the incarnation, we will fall short of a full understanding of our humanity. So yes, the incarnation makes known certain truths of human nature that we can know on our own, but many of these truths remain heavily disputed and pretty much always have been disputed. So just as with attaining to knowledge of certain truths about God by reason alone, such as like that he exists, which St. Thomas says, yes, can be done, quote, but only by a few, and that after a long time, and with the admixture of many errors, end quote, this is the very first article of the Summa, so it is with truths about the human person, especially the admixture of many errors thing. The incarnation, the reality of God's becoming man, corrects and dispels these errors and settles the disputes in a supremely definitive and irrefutable manner. The incarnation makes known truths about the human person clearly and easily, even if in themselves many of these truths remain accessible to reason as such. But as with truths about God, there are also truths about the human person that must be revealed if we are to know them, as we would never know them on our own. So for God, these truths would include, of course, that he is love, that he is a trinity of persons. For the human person, these truths that the incarnation reveals would include the supreme dignity of the human person and of our high calling, that of our being ordered to eternal life with the triune God, or the resurrection of the body, to name just two examples. So in this twofold manner, then, does Christ fully reveal man to himself? First, 
making certain natural truths about the human person known more clearly and easily, no matter if they're accessible to reason alone, thereby resolving the disputed issues, and two, making known truths about the human person that we would never know if they weren't revealed in Christ. Okay, so the first most important lesson I think that we learn of what it means to be human is that the human being is made up of both body and soul, of matter and spirit, that man is a body-soul composite unity. In his question in the Summa of Theology devoted to the parts of human nature that were assumed, this is in the third part of the Summa where St. Thomas gives his comprehensive treatise on Christ. Most of the passages will be coming from that part of the of the Summa, St. Thomas asserts, human nature is constituted of a soul and body. Hence, the Word of God assumed a body and an intellectual and rational soul. To say that Christ as a human being is constituted of a body and a soul, it may not sound like much, but it is of profound paramount significance. Among other things, it lays to rest philosophical dispute on how human nature is constituted. For though philosophy, in particular Aristotelian philosophy, can establish that the human being is a composite unity of body and soul, this is hardly obvious or without controversial dispute, as there are many philosophical theories that erroneously hold otherwise. Most famous, there is Platonism, which favors a kind of dualism, and that man is seen essentially as a soul or spirit who finds himself imprisoned or entrapped in a body. Plato also uses the term tomb, and longs to be free of the body. And we find various recycled versions of Platonic dualism down through the ages, often inspired by a disparaging disregard for the body, typically part and parcel of a view that all of material reality as such is evil. We find a softer Platonic-like dualism in the father of modern philosophy, René Descartes, Descartes holds that the human being is essentially a soul, a thinking self, who is only accidentally or loosely tied to a body. He expressly says, this I, that is to say the soul, by which I am what I am, is entirely distinct from the body. Though Descartes doesn't see the body as evil per se, still he detaches the body from our essential human identity. Note, I am what I am not by a body and a soul together, but only by a soul. The body in his account is thus alien to our human identity. This Cartesian anthropology has been massively influential on modern thought and culture, though not in obvious or necessarily conscious ways. Just consider how we're told the biological design of one's body is accidental to one's sexual self-identity, to give just one example. Then on the other polar opposite extreme is a materialist conception of the human being, which reduces the human person to a mere body. We're just animated carbon with a consciousness, and the whole inner life of man, love, abstract thought, moral struggle, is explained entirely by way of neurobiological and chemical phenomena. This is quite widespread today among many scientists, psychologists, philosophers, and pundits of all stripes. So contra contrast these two opposing extreme philosophical anthropologies, the one a Platonic-like or Cartesian-styled dualism, the other a materialist anthropology <clears throat> with an Aristotelian account, more specifically with the principles of Aristotelian hylomorphism, whereby all things, including man, are constituted of matter and form. <clears throat> In our case, an organic body of an animal-like sort or matter and a rational soul, our form. <clears throat> so if Aristotelian hylomorphism can establish that the human being is a body-soul composite, the incarnation confirms this beyond all doubt, beyond considerable philosophical doubt, as it turns out, and settles the matter in a supremely definitive manner. It definitively rules out any kind of Cartesian-styled or Platonic-like dualism or any materialist view of human nature. There's another primordial anthropological lesson that the Incarnation makes clear. It is the sacred dignity and inestimable worth of the human person.
Yes, Genesis 1.27 provides the biblical foundation for this by revealing the doctrine of the imago dei, of the human being as the image of God. But the incarnation intensifies and supremely elevates this doctrine to an unparalleled height. St. Thomas writes, If man remained in ignorance of his own worth, he would easily be led to place his end in things other than God. Accordingly, man's worth is most fittingly indicated by God since through the incarnation, God joins himself immediately to human nature. We're worth much more than simply the sum of our attributes and personality traits, and we're worth much more than the career we establish for ourselves or the money we make or the possessions we enjoy or even the collection of our human relationships. We're, we were purchased at a great price, as St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6.20. Western civilization's notion of human dignity owes in large measure, if not nearly entirely, to the biblical Judeo-Christian value as regards the sacred dignity of human life. For evidence, just consider the disregard for human life and the casual taking of human life that was commonplace in the ancient world outside the Bible. Or the wanton disregard for human dignity and the horrific bloodshed and mass killings commensurate with this by those totalitarian political systems of the 20th century that expre expressly rejected Judeo-Christian values and devalued the human, the human person, whether this, uh, these, this political system be fascism or communism. Only the incarnation could lead St. Paul to assert in what remains as radical and unparalleled now as it was when he wrote it, that in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So let's develop this further by delving first into the anthropological significance of Christ having taken on a spiritual soul and then into the importance of his having taken on a body. So part three, my soul is very sorrowful even to death, the anthropological significance of Christ's assumption of a rational soul. For context, know that affirming Christ's assumption of a soul was not obvious or without controversy, as the ancient heresy of Arianism held that the divine person of the Son, or the Word, took the place of a human soul. Arianism understood John 1.14, and the Word became flesh, to mean only a body, literally flesh alone. Instead of, as St. Thomas insists, when we say the Word became flesh, flesh is taken for the whole man as if we were to say the word became man. If the heresy of Arianism is known for denying Christ's divinity, which it does, it's no less a heresy that denies Christ's full humanity. And the later heresy of Apollinarianism tweaked the Arian position a bit and said that Christ had an animal soul, psyche in Greek, but the son or the word took the place of a rational soul, a noose. St. Thomas here is rather straightforward. First, there is the simple metaphysical fact that a soul is required for one to be human. Flesh and the other parts of man receive their species, that is, receive their specific human identity and existence through the soul. Hence, if the soul is absent, there are no bones nor flesh except equivocally. That rules out Arianism. Since the body is proportioned to the soul as matter to its proper form, he writes, it is not truly human flesh if it is not perfected by a human, that is, rational soul. Hence, if Christ had had a soul without a rational part, the noose in Greek or mens in Latin, that's the word that St. Thomas uses here, mens, he would not have had true human flesh, but irrational flesh, since our soul differs from an animal by the rational part, the men's, alone. That rules out Apollinarianism. Second, St. Thomas observes that as far as the historical record is concerned, certain events and actions in the life of Jesus cannot be explained if he doesn't have a rational soul. So St. Thomas writes, Beyond the simple fact that our Lord makes mention of his soul in Matthew 26, 38, my soul is sorrowful even unto death, the evangelists relate how Jesus wondered, was angered, sad, and hungry. Now these show that he had a true soul, just as that he ate, slept, and was weary 
shows that he had a true human body. Also, the Gospels relate how Jesus marveled, as is plain from Matthew 8.10. Now, marveling cannot be without reason. End quote. This may sound kind of humdrum or sort of obvious, but keep in mind here the heresies mentioned above to appreciate Thomas's like duh like response here. So, what anthropological lessons can we draw from this? Uh, so first, the negative. We're not just animated carbon with a consciousness. We're not just slabs of meat with a, with a computer-like brain responding to nothing more than neurobiological twitches and chemical signals. No, putting this positively, we have a spiritual, immortal, rational soul. It is, in fact, on account of our rational soul that we're in God's image in the first place. St. Thomas says, the image of God is in our intellectual nature. Having a rational soul endowed with the faculties of reason and will means that we can attain to highest reality. We can attain to the highest functions of knowing and loving. That is, we can attain to knowledge and love of highest reality. And that only highest reality, only the infinite and absolute, can satisfy us. Put in other terms, we have a transcendent or vertical dimension to our nature that orders us to transcendent vertical reality, which explains why a reductionist view of the human person as nothing more than a mere body is utterly dehumanizing since it completely flattens out the meaning and purpose of human life. It drains all human choices, human accomplishments, human endeavors, and human adventures of real meaning and significance. Indeed, Jesus makes himself makes it clear for the first time in human history and in salvation history that our lives are teleologically ordered to eternal life with God and that we are meant to imbibe the very holiness of God himself. In the Sermon on the Mount, the great moral text of the New Testament, the Magna Carta of New Testament morality, as John Paul II calls it, Jesus makes plain that happiness, blessedness, will be found in heaven, Matthew 5.12. And then he impels us to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect, Matthew 5.48. As the letter to the Hebrews puts it, here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city which is to come, Hebrews 13, 14. As Thomas likes to put it, we are viators, wayfarers, here below on pilgrimage to our eternal homeland, where at last we'll be what he calls comprehensors, that is, those in the immediate presence of God, full beholders of truth itself, and full possessors of goodness itself and so enjoying complete rest and fulfillment. Heaven is our true homeland, and our hearts are restless until they rest in God. Second, again the negative. To be human does not mean never to show emotion, nor even intense emotion. The ideal is not Mr. Spock to be a stoic, pallid individual with silent emotion. So I want to do a thought experiment with you just for a moment. So pretend Jesus never existed, erase him from your minds, then imagine what kind of a God-man would he be? And so if God became human, just kind of imagine what he'd be like. Would you imagine him to exhibit emotion? Or would he be kind of like Mr. Spock? Would you imagine him to show anger? After all, anger is a path to the dark side. <laughs> is it not? Then consider Jesus. Does he show emotion? He does. Which emotion do you think he shows the most? In fact, it's not even close. I did my dissertation on this, so I went through and I counted all of them. You know which emotion he shows the most by far? Anger. Anger. The positive lesson here is this. Having a soul means having emotions. And it would thus be a repression of our humanity to repress our emotions as such. They're part of our nature. Specifically, Thomas defines them as movements of the sensitive appetite. Basically, they're inclinations of our lower animal-like drives toward bodily goods. He writes, in human nature is included animal nature as the genus and its species. Hence, the Son of God, 
must have assumed together with the human nature whatever belongs to animal nature, one of which things is the sensitive appetite, which is called sensuality. Consequently, it must be allowed that in Christ there was a sensual appetite or sensuality. Now, the affections of the sensitive appetite are most properly called passions of the soul. These were in Christ, even as all else pertaining to, pertaining to man's nature, end quote. But being subject to emotion does not mean being emotionally unhinged or letting our passions dictate our actions. For Thomas immediately follows with, we must know that the passions were in Christ otherwise than in us, end quote. Jesus enjoyed perfect self-mastery and self-control, and this is because he was perfectly virtuous, for it is virtue whereby we exercise self-mastery and control over our lower instinctive drives. He writes, Christ had grace and all the virtues most perfectly. Now moral virtues, which are in the irrational part of the soul, make it subject to reason, and so much the more as the virtue is more perfect. Thus temperance, controls the concupiscible appetite, fortitude, and meekness, the irascible appetite. Note, virtue does not expunge or repress emotion as such, as the Stoics believed. And St. Thomas had a lifelong polemic with the Stoics on this point, reserving his strongest language for when he critiques their extremism on the morality of the passions. Rather, virtue adjudicates a balanced and rationally appropriate expression of our emotions. Again, the passions are part of our nature, and they incline us, yes, to lower bodily goods, but to goods nonetheless. So virtue integrates these lower movements into the rationally excellent and properly human way of life. Can it be rationally appropriate to enjoy the pleasure of eating? Yes, but it would be rationally inappropriate to allow the pleasure of eating to dictate your actions so that you would eat whenever you feel like it, whatever you want, however you want. You arrive at grandma's house for Christmas dinner and you're hungry and you can smell the food though dinner hasn't been served yet. So you want to eat. Is this bad to want to eat? No. But would it be bad if you went immediately to the kitchen to help yourself? Yes. You must exercise some self-control which extends to the dinner table even once the meal is served, since you must observe measured self-control while eating, proper manners and etiquette, not shoveling the food in, not burying your face in your plate, etc. So all this Jesus fully reveals in a supremely definitive manner, that the passions are owing to our nature and that contrary to the Stoic position, we can no sooner be free of them than to be free of our very humanity. Further, that we are to be master of our passions. But that being master of our passions doesn't mean silencing our passions or standing aloof from them. Far from it. Rather, it means rightly channeling our passions, integrating and humanizing them, having them serve the good of reason and will. Even intense or strong passions can do this sometimes. Okay, so now let's consider the anthropological implications of Christ having taken on a body. A matter that I want to give uh, a little bit of attention to since, of course, we live in an age that, as one author has recently put it, uh, we live in an age that wrestles with the question of, of anthropology, particularly as it relates to disputes surrounding the meaning and purpose of the body. He calls it an age that centers on the battle for the body. Does the body matter? Does the body with its biological structuring matter? Does biology matter? In short, what does it mean to be an embodied person? St. Thomas takes Jesus as having a body not simply as simple metaphysical or philosophical fact, but as simple theological soteriological fact. We know that Jesus had to have a body, since if he didn't, then he, we wouldn't have been saved. If he had no body, he didn't suffer and die. And if he didn't suffer and die, then human salvation was never accomplished. So St. Thomas writes, if Christ's body were not real but imaginary, if he neither underwent a real death, nor those things which the evangelists recount of him, did he do any in very truth but only in appearance, and hence it would follow that the real salvation of man has not taken place. 
So what anthropological lessons can we draw from Jesus as having taken out a body? A body that he still has, of course, since his body was resurrected. First and foremost, the body is essential to our human identity. We're not just a thinking, choosing self. An intellect and will accidentally joined to or worse imprisoned in disposable meat wrapping. The body is not just a husk or a shell and is not to be consigned to the realm of the subhuman, but is integral to our nature. We're not just a happy accident of biology. The body matters. The body is essential to who we are, to how we live, and to how we love. My body, your body, is not just a thing. It's you. It's me. And so what I do with my body, I do to myself, which is why it's gravely wrong to abuse the body. Since we are our bodies, the body shares in our moral agency and in the sacred dignity of the human person. Our bodies are not evil, but good. St. Thomas says this, bodily nature was instituted by the good God, so much so that he singles out as the worst of all heresies, the heresy that holds, quote, that bodily things were caused by an evil God. That's the worst of all heresies, he says, to say that bodily things were caused by an evil God. And he says that when he's talking about um, sexual union, by the way, between husband and wife. More than that, the body is a beautiful work of art. Indeed, St. Thomas considers the human body to be God's artistic masterpiece. St. Thomas observes that matter is for the sake of form, with the result that the human body is specifically fit for a rational form in order to carry out rational action and thereby stands apart from all other bodies as the most excellent expression, quote, of the divine art. So look at this passage here. All natural things were produced by the divine art, and so may be called God's works of art. Now the proximate end of the human body is the rational form and its operations. Since matter is for the sake of form, I say, therefore, that God fashioned the human body in that disposition which was best as most suited to such a rational form and to such operations. It's an amazing, that's an, that's an amazing passage. The human body is God's artistic masterpiece. Consider how on a physical level our bodies testify to our rational nature, such as, for instance, the unique design of the inanimate bone, the hip bone, which allows humans to stand upright and erect indefinitely, thereby putting our bodies on a vertical axis as in accord with how our souls order us vertically to God, as I noted earlier. Or consider the sophisticated design of the larynx. No other animal has a larynx like we do, allowing for complex rational speech. That is verbal speech that signifies spiritual, immaterial, conceptual thought. Or the human hand with its opposable thumb. Dante, you know, in the Divine Comedy in the Paradiso, he likens the body to a royal robe that uh, clothes, clothes the soul. Uh, it's, it's tremendously elevated language. It's very Thomistic in its inspiration, Dante says. Further, the body is so good and sacred that it has an everlasting, eternal destiny. The body's destiny is not the grave. Recall what we recite in the Creed at Mass. I believe in the resurrection of the body. Indeed, the human body is not simply destined to live forever. It's to be glorified, to enjoy an everlasting glorified state. The body will be spiritualized, as St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. That is, it will attain to properties that our bodies don't now possess, like luminescence or radiance, immortality, immunity from all suffering and disease, and the ability to move without any difficulty or labor. We, we get a snapshot of that in the resurrection account of Jesus and that he appears with the apostles in the room with the door being locked. Bodies can't normally do that. 
So they think they're seeing a ghost, naturally enough. What does he do to prove to them that, it, that he has a real body, that he's not a ghost? Has him touch him. He can't touch a ghost. He also eats some food. Another important lesson, because the body matters, biology matters. And because biology matters, human sexuality matters. Talk about a currently heavily disputed topic, and one admixed with many errors, at least if we're considering something like gender ideology. Did Jesus assume a sexed nature in order to make the essential importance of human biology and human sexuality known more clearly and easily, and thereby definitively settle and retort to something like gender ideology? You want to know what St. Thomas thinks? Christ had, so it's the passage on the bottom there. Christ had to be like his brethren in all things natural, as Hebrews 2.17 says. Yet sex is natural to man. Therefore, he had to assume a sex. Further, Christ came to restore or redeem human nature by his very assumption. That's an echo of the soteriological principle. For this reason, it was necessary that he assume everything following upon human nature, namely all the properties and parts of human nature, among which is sex. And therefore, it was proper for him to assume a particular sex. He assumed a sex not in order to use it, but for the perfection of nature. This passage is without precedent at all. The scholastics did consider the sex that the Son of God took on, but they don't ask this question, whether he had to take on any sex at all. St. Thomas is the first to ask the question. No such thing as toxic masculinity for St. Thomas Aquinas. For St. Thomas, the foundation for sexual difference is human biology, or more specifically, animal-like biological design and structure. Sexual difference, sexuality, follows immediately upon having a body of an animal-like sort. He compares it to how risibility follows immediately upon having a rational soul. So as risibility is to a rational soul, soul so is binary sexual difference to an animal-like body. He, he writes this, sexuality is natural to man by reason of his animal life, as bodily organs clearly attest. God and angels, God and the angels have no sex because neither have bodies. And we know that modern biology or genomic science confirms this since, of course, the foundation of sexual difference and thus of one's sexual identity are the complementary genetic karyotypes of XX for females and XY for males. Sexual difference, maleness or femaleness, is written into our very biological design and that it is encoded in the nucleus of each and every cell of our bodies. Sex constitutes what St. Thomas calls a tantum bonum, a great good indeed. He is, in fact, so firm on the tantum bonum of sex and on the integral role it plays in our body-soul design that he insists our sexuality shall remain in our resurrected bodies. This was a disputed point. Some of the Greek fathers rejected this point, but look what Thomas holds. Sexual difference befits, befits the perfection of our species. And therefore, just as humans will rise again in diverse statures, some taller, some shorter, so too in diverse sexes. The difference between the sexes and genital members will be for restoring the perfection of human nature, both in the species and in the individual. We shall rise, not as androgynous or epicene, undifferentiated individuals, but as male and female persons with all the biological structuring, all the bodily integrity that this entails, albeit in a glorified mode. When Jesus rose, when he showed them the wounds in his hands, it was his same male-structured body. It was the male Jesus who was, who was put to death on the cross, and it's that male Jesus who rises from the dead. From our conception to our everlasting glorification, our male-structured and female-structured bodies shall remain a constitutive part of our human identity. So I'll finish by drawing out the moral implications of Christ having taken on a male sexuality for us 
by highlighting how his male sexual structuring was a source of moral excellence, specifically in the form of chastity. St. Thomas uh, says that Christ is the exemplum virtutis, the supreme model of all virtue. And since he is the supreme model of all virtue, he is thereby the exemplum castitatis, that is the model, supreme model of chastity. Chastity, of course, is the virtue that, that uh, renders properly human, that adjudicates our enjoyment of sex in a properly human, rationally appropriate manner. First, though, a word about Jesus' male structuring, in particular his male neurobiological structuring. Modern neurobiological research has shown that the male and female brains are structured differently. There's much to be said about this, but um, I'll just, you know, just to give a, simple, a couple simple examples, the connections in the male brain run between the front and the back, like this, the same sides of the brain, whereas the connections in the female brain run from side to side between the left and the right hemispheres. So this allows men generally to function better at spatial tasks and motor control, whereas women generally perform better at verbal tasks that involve memory and intuition. The idea here is not that one is superior to the other, it's, it's complementarity. And that complementarity, male and female, he, he made them, reaches, it's much more than just you know, reproductive organs, it reaches to the very design of the brain. That's how deep it goes. What I'll focus on is the neurobiological differences in sexual desire and activity because it shows up there as well. The female brain engages more of the cerebral cortex and has more extensive oxytocin circuits, the so-called bonding hormone, when it comes to sex, which hardwires women neurobiologically in a particular way for relationships. Whereas the male brain owns more extensive testosterone circuits, the hormone that mediates male aggression and the male sex drive which makes the male sex drive oriented more to physical attraction. Scientists use the term objectification and pleasure. I ask my students all the time, what does it mean to be intimate? Then I ask the women to answer the question, and they usually say having some kind of emotional connection. And then I ask the men, what do they mean, what, how they would uh, explain what it means to be intimate, and men will say to have sex. Same question. Two different answers. Psychological studies bear this out, as these show that men possessing a sex drive oriented to physical attraction and pleasure display a stronger sexual appetite than women and are more motivated to pursue sexual opportunities. Throw the disordering effects of original sin, and we have the male neurobiological wiring being undoubtedly adversely affected. The upshot? Generally speaking, men must master and control in a particular way certainly more so than women, not that some women don't struggle with this, but in general, speaking generally speaking, men must master and control in a particular way their sexual appetites and aggressive impulses. Lust emerges as especially male problem. How does this relate to Christ? Well, he was a man in its full biological sense, which means he owned the XY genetic karyotype and all that this gives rise to, including a male-structured brain designed to send male-specific neurotransmitters and to release male-specific biochemicals and hormones that largely determine male-specific behavior. This in turn means Jesus and his full humanity owned the typical male neurobiological structuring orienting men to physical attraction and to pleasure. Natural biological design demands this. And St. Thomas says, what is natural to man was neither acquired nor forfeited by sin. So the neurobiological structuring of the male brain is not a constant, it wasn't acquired through sin. All the same, the male, uh, his male, Christ's male suffering, structuring, Christ's male structuring did not suffer the disordering effects of original sin. He was sinless with the result that he was, quote, not troubled by the passions of the soul nor the desires of the flesh. That's a citation from the Second Council of Constantinople from 553. This means that Jesus' perfect self-mastery over his sexual appetites was not compromised. In no way did he struggle with lust. We can therefore stress that Christ's moral exemplarity, we can, we can stress his moral exemplarity from two distinct angles. First, as a human being and as savior of the human race, 
Christ serves as exemplum virtutis, supreme model of virtue for all people, men and women alike. Second, as a male individual, Christ serves as a particular model of virtue for men, for those who share a male structuring with him, just as the Virgin Mary serves as, as a particular model of virtue for women. Concerning his male sexuality, it bears insisting, Christ serves as a particular model of chastity or sexual purity, especially for men. No small matter, given that men face a particular challenge in being chaste, endowed as they are with a neurobiological predisposition to objectifying women and to seeking sexual pleasure for its own sake. Think me too. An example of manly chastity, Jesus exemplifies an integrated sexuality in a male-specific or a male-appropriate manner. Though men in their fallen condition might commonly struggle to varying degrees with a disordered sex drive, Christ's male sex drive at all points served his proper moral good and indeed was a source burgeoning unto his moral good and is thus a supreme example for all men, especially all people, but especially all men. The gospel witness makes clear that Jesus formed deep, intimate relationships with both sexes. These relationships remained completely non-genital or non-erotic and were wholly virtuous. Jesus opted for a life of virginity, that virtue defined by the perpetual renunciation of all sexual pleasure. Unless we think he chose virginity out of a harbored disdain for marriage, as if by default, his teaching on the impermissibility of marriage after divorce proves otherwise. Jesus favored a highly elevated understanding of marriage as an indissoluble and sacred union. So there are a lot more anthropological lessons that we can, that we can uh, garner from the Incarnation, but that's just a sampling that I uh, share with you this evening. Thank you for your attention. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.thomisticinstitute.org donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith, and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.